Hi, everyone at Nathan Phillips Square. Uh, welcome to Urbanite, and hello from the stage of Nathan Phillips Square. We are here live with a recording of Fashion Talks, the podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion, and I'm your host, Donna Bishop. And today we are digging into a really important, really timely discussion around fashion and inclusivity. And the, my three guests today, I can't think of three smarter, more, more brilliant, more passionate people to discuss this really important topic. Sage Paul, artist, designer, founder, artistic director of Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto which is happening in two weeks. Give a little wave, Sage, so everyone knows who you are. Uh, fashion designer Haley Elsacer, and her boutique on Queen West is a West End landmark. If you are here from out of town, I highly suggest going by and saying hello. And finally, fashion designer, artist, activist, Adrian Wu. And Adrian has an installation here at Urbanity this, uh, for this festival, so be sure to come and check that out. So thank you so much, the three of you, for being here. Yeah, everyone's mic is on. And I just want to acknowledge that, you know, for all of you, I know the, the, the topic of inclusivity is something that is very personal to all of you. So, so as we have our, our discussion... Yeah, it's not on. I don't think it's on. We seem to be having Hello. some mic issues. Testing. We can Hello. test share mic. There oh, we oh, are. Oh, it's working now. Okay. I love a live event. <laughs> <laughs> so as we get into our discussions, you know, we might hear a little bit more about, about your personal stories. But I'd like to start down there with you, Sage, and I'm going to go across the row. Tell me a little bit about what inclusivity means to you and, and why it's something that, it's, that is important. And, and if this is a good moment to share a bit of a personal moment as to why it's something you're so passionate about, then, then we'd love to hear it. Um. I guess inclusivity to me means um, providing accessibility. We want to create access to um, we want to create access to what's available, and so it presents a wide um, representation of who is within all of these industries we work in, within arts, within culture, within fashion. I think it's just so important that the narrative is multifaceted. We're all multifaceted. We're not the same. Um, and if we're having, a, if the fashion industry is only representative of one type of person, it's not representative of what's out there. Um, as an Indigenous woman, I've always really struggled to access the fashion industry and be able to rep represent myself within, with not in a stereotypical kind of way. Um, when I was in fashion school, things have really grown since uh, over 10 years ago, where I'm actually able to see more representation, more indigenous representation within the industry. Um, there's still a lot of work to do, but I think it's about accessibility. It, it, there is, I think, a, uh, a, a C, a title change that's happening, a little bit more to do. Adrian, what about you? What does inclusivity mean to you, and, and why is it something that's so important? I mean, I'm... I'm afraid to answer this question a little abstractly um, because I think, for me, the first word that comes to mind is empathy, uh, is thinking about the everyday lives and experiences of everyday people and, and empathizing with everyone's intersectional perspective. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's difficult when we live in a world that is not always inherently empathetic towards every single individual. And um, 
So for me, I think inclusivity has a lot to do with taking the time to listen to another person's perspective, even if it is coming from a different place than you. So. Absolutely. And, and what about you, Haley? I see you nodding your head. Is, is what everyone else is resonating? What about inclusivity for you? I totally agree with what you have been saying. And for me, from my perspective, um, fashion in general is very exclusive. And that's something that I hate. So I think to, in order to combat that, it's showing beauty in all different ways and showing acceptance and showing that there isn't one notion of beauty or one notion of fashion. It is multifaceted and there's so many different ways to be interesting and be beautiful and be part of the conversation. And I think it's um, just opening up that realm and giving uh, a voice to different people and giving them um, a chance to be seen and a chance to be part of the industry and the conversation. And just having not just one voice or one ideal, having a rainbow of different ideas coming together and having everyone on equal fields. And, and at a really macro level, why is that important? Like what are the, why, why should we care about inclusivity in the fashion, in the fashion industry? Go ahead, Adrian. Um, uh, well, if you want to specify, I mean, we're talking about fashion here, I guess. Mm. Um, and the first word that I think about is elitism as well, is mm. the, the problem with how fashion, how, there's, a, there's a level of, of illusion that exists. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, when we put out a collection and we put out a specific kind of image, uh, it's easy to essentialize that. It's easy to idealize and put that image on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. And fashion is really good at, at mistakenly creating a... Um, almost an elitist attitude that, from, I mean, in my experience, I don't know about you two, but has definitely and still exists uh, in, the, in the corporate and as well the everyday ideas of what we think fashion is. Sage, I see you nodding. Are you, what are you thinking as you, as you listen to Adrian? Because something we've certainly talked about is the, the irony of fashion being an industry of freedom and personal expression and and this uh, assumption, and in many ways, truth of, of inclusion. And yet, here we are talking about how it needs to be inclusive. So, and, and I think what Adrian's saying about there being pedestals that are erected is certainly something that I see you kind of nodding and reacting to. What are you thinking? The, the, the idea of an illusion um, is what we're being sold in fashion. It's totally based on capitalism and commercialism and trying to sell like us these ideas of what we're trying to um, attain to. They're not, I, they're not realistic. Um, it's not representative of what is actually happening amongst all us as people here. Um, and I think like if, we're, if we are not going to open up to be more inclusive and to let go of the elitist and the VIP kind of perspective, it just creates a really stagnant um, landscape for us to exist in, mm -hmm. and it's not representative of me and or you guys. And it's just it's it's um, it's an illusion that people have to attain to that I just don't think is realistic or viable, and it's not sustainable either. Well, and cultural appropriation is a big part of that in terms of you know race and inclusivity as it relates 
as it relates to fashion. I think we've certainly seen everything from, you know, Gucci putting turbans on, on white models to D squared's colossal PR disaster um, of 2015. And, you know, I think there's, a, there's this fine line between wanting to appreciate or, or celebrate a culture that is not our own and appropriating that culture. How, 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 as an indigenous woman, do you help people understand how to walk that line? And how do, how do you see that being walked in, in fashion? Well, I, I think cultural appropriation is setting us up to mythologize indigenous people. And if we're mythologizing us, that basically means we don't exist. It presents an image that indigenous people are not here anymore. We're part of the past, we're romantic, romanticized and um, you know, there's a serious issue with missing and murdered Indigenous women. And if we're romanticizing and fetishizing Indigenous women in this way that is mythologizing us, um, the, that issue of Indigenous women being murdered or going missing is never going to be addressed because we don't exist. So that's the very harmful and dangerous, dangerous impacts of cultural appropriation. But at the same time, like, we still want to be able to celebrate our culture. And I want, like, my, my family and my, my cousins and my aunties and my friends who are working in fashion and craft to thrive. I want them to be able to take advantage of what the fashion industry has to offer in terms of, like, economic development. And through Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto, I'm really hoping that it creates a platform where we do exist. And we, we do exist. We're here. And we have a lot of work to offer. Um, so so it's really about, I think, about celebrating and understanding where our work comes from and who's making it. What I hear you drawing a really straight line towards are the relationship between how we present a culture in fashion and how that relates to how that culture is seen generally in the world. Like how, how um, we'll use indigenous for the sake of our conversation today, but how indigenous peoples are represented or as the case may be not included in fashion makes them invisible in many other ways so that the ramifications of this industry not being inclusive is actually much bigger than, oh, we don't see you know, indigenous women in a fashion ad. Yeah. Would you say that's... Is, is that, have I drawn that line on your behalf? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have a question for Sage, actually. Um, would you say that, would you say that fashion as an ideology is within itself a colonial construct? Um, I think fashion within what we exist in within this industry, for sure. We live in a very Western construct of what fashion is. Yeah. And I'm hoping that through Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto, we can look at um, the like, artistic um, value behind it and the integrity and the generations of storytelling and making and the skill that are being passed on. It's not just Indigenous people. There's like all different cultures who... Um, how, like the utilitarian art and those forms that pass through generations, we, we bring it up in anthropological kinds of ways, but those were people who were making thousands, millions of years ago who were like, you know, these are ancient couture kind of um, ways of looking at fashion. It's, it's, you know, it's more than what we have in front of it's us. It's about the value, right? Like yeah. it's about, it's about reinvigorating value. Now, Haley, I know model casting is something that you're very passionate about. Can you tell us a little bit about, because as I'm listening to Sage talk and about, you know, the visibility, I'm thinking of 
the visibility that you have brought with your brand to to many um, different body shapes, different body sizes, different levels of ability. What's your approach to model casting, and how do you react to what Sage is saying about how it's about visibility? Yeah, I in. On the broader scale, the fashion industry in general just shows one beauty ideal that's very um, European, North American, blonde It's skinny white blonde girl. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> Let's um, call it what it is, right? <laughs> if you look around, that's not really the reality of our world, especially in Toronto. So um, I actually started my brand in Australia, and um, I was introduced very shockingly and early when I was at school, um, kind of how models are treated. and the really high standards that they need to um, reach to, in order to be booked for gigs and that kind of thing. And um, originally I was trying to figure out whose job it was to change the notion of a sample size. And I was wondering if it was um, magazines or modeling agencies. And eventually I came to the idea that it was the designers because they're the ones who make the garments in these sizes that models need to fit into. So um, from that point I decided to make um, my sample size is a sample, like a, a size bigger or two sizes bigger, like years ago, than the typical sample size. But I always had trouble finding models that weren't, that would fit my clothing because they were generally too small because I was doing bigger than sample size. So, um, and I also just don't want to perpetuate the idea that this is the one um, type of body you have to have in order to be beautiful or in order to be worthy to wear fashion, high fashion, that there's all different types of beauty. So that's why I really went to open casting to do my shows because I want to just show that you can look many different ways and still be valuable and beautiful and have a voice and uh, be a part of the fashion industry and be interesting and someone that people should pay attention to. I, the thought that I really love to have is that I want everyone in the audience to be able to see someone that they can sort of relate to. Before that, I've never been super skinny. I'm obviously a plus-size woman now, and I always... I have like an apple-shaped body. I don't have an hourglass shape. So I never saw anybody with my body shape, and I always thought that it was wrong because of that. But that, this is just the way that I was born. And there's so many different people, and that's what makes us all interesting and unique. So why not um, take that individuality and inject it into fashion shows and just have that extra element of interest and personalization to it? That's how I approach it. I love... Um, showing off my models' individuality and just having like a rainbow of models because that's um, representative of where we live in Toronto and the people that interact with my label and that kind of thing. It just seems to me silly to do it any other way. Why not? And what's the kind of reaction you've gotten from your very first time trying to do open casting when you were still in Australia to even this most latest collection when you showed at Toronto Fashion Week in February? Have you noticed a difference in how people react to your approach to open casting? Um, the general public reacts very positively because they're like, wow, I've never seen anybody on the runway that looks like me, or I've never thought that I could be on a runway for Toronto Fashion Week, but now that I, I could and I can, and they do. Um, I've had my brother who's sitting over there, he's six foot seven. I had my aunt who's like seven years old on the runway. People that were five foot two, size two to size 18, whatever, like all different bodies. And, um, and, and, and levels of accessibility. I remember seeing, you know, sure. with, bodies, the, with canes, bodies, like the gamut. Um, yeah. orientations, everything like that, just to, because that's the people that are surround me in my everyday life. But I have had some issues with um, certain industry 
type people where they say you need to have models of this height, this size. You're joking. People <laughs> still do that. Oh, absolutely not a joke. People no. still talk like that. Yeah. You would be surprised who it is. I'm not going to Don't here. you name a people name right now. People still talk <laughs> like that. <laughs> but, and I just have to say, yep, no problem. I'll do that. And then I just don't do it because there's no other way to get around it. So uh, how, and how are those people not living in a bubble? Like, I think our industry a is a bubble. bubble. Yeah, it is. Like, so I'm curious about this. I know, aghast, aghast. So I want to I wanna unpack this a little bit more, and then I'm going to flip it to you, Adrian, because so much of yeah. what Haley's saying I know is resonating yeah. with you. Why do you think that is? Like, what is it about that very narrow approach to beauty that makes people say that about, you know, you really should have you know, this type of model or this size? Like, are they, are they presenting a rationale? Are you assuming they're of a generation? Like, what, is, what's up with that, Haley? It's a combination of things, absolutely. It's generally the, uh, the idea of, like, elitism and how I think it, it, it was definitely someone like Carl Lagerfeld, some really old white guy 50 years ago that decided this is the kind of beauty that is the most perfect and amazing, and this is what everyone should do. Let's make our samples in this and everyone will follow suit. And that's how it was done. For some reason, um, that part of the industry hasn't changed. Yeah. And we progress in so many other ways because fashion trends are always changing and always evolving. But the really problematic, horrible parts of the industry aren't changing until, I guess, I think the younger generation like us decides that we're kind of sick of it and let's make a change. So it is 100% older generation that that's kind of the way they grew up and they don't see anything wrong with that, so they just keep on perpetuating that, but it's obviously not okay. Yeah. Adrian, yeah. jump in. You know, it's funny, because I've been, I've been thinking a lot about the difference between not necessarily baby boomers and millennials, but I was also thinking about the subtle differences between millennials and Generation Z. Is it Z? Uh, uh, no, Z. It's Z. It's yeah. Z. And how, do you know um, how, where the cutoff is for that between millennial uh, and generation I believe it's 1995. Okay. It, those that are born after 19, 1995 are those um, technically in Generation Z. Okay. And, you know, uh, like on, on, without having, you know, a dramatic reaction, I, would you all say that there's some type of change that's happening right now? in fashion is that fashion is now just sort of a shift happening, I think, where it's becoming a commentary. Fashion's being used as a medium uh, and younger people are using it as a, as, a, as, a, as a platform of themselves to, uh, to promote social change. Uh, I, I think, I think, I think you're right. Expression. And I'm just yeah. going to jump in with, with something that I wanted you to react to earlier, which was that at, at New York Fashion Week in its, in its last showing, there were a number of, and they tend to be newer designers, younger designers, um, you know, the, the brand Chromat, Gypsy Sport, that talk about this new approach to, to casting, approach to their brand, where they want to, they, they didn't expressly say they're using it as like a political platform for their own, you know, needle of change, but it just seems to be inherently in their blood yeah, that I there mean, is a difference. Yeah, there are new brands that are coming up, especially Vetma. I would mm -hmm. say, you know, we, people can easily write off Vetma as, you know, $5,000 hoodies or $5,000 mm -hmm. jackets, but the way in which that they are... Um, the, the, the business model that they're pushing forward is, for me, I would say very different. And for uh, people who aren't familiar with Vetma, can you give a little background uh, for they people? They are a 
a, well, they show up Paris Fashion Week. And their brand is, uh, like, their recent lookbook, it was, it was literally every, people on the street. It was every, like, it was 63 photos, I believe, of everyday people wearing their clothing. And it, what's really interesting about that ma is, 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 is different races, different body shapes. Uh, their, their focus is not necessarily on the ideal body. It's about, um, I would say, the tropes and the ideas of the, what comes along with what someone can design. And it's not necessarily focused around the body. Mm. And going back to what, I was, what we were talking about before, um, what were we talking about before? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what were, what were we talking about? We're talking about, um, you know, the Generation Z or Z, yeah, as we might say yeah, here in Canada, um, having more of a you know, like, personal attachment. Well, I mean, a recent study came out in the United States that, uh, that more than 50, about 53% of Generation Z uh, identify as queer. And also know someone that uses they, them pronouns or know someone that's non-binary. And that, that shift that's happening is that's a shift that's happening, I think, yeah. is, is that we have a lot of new brands that are not thinking about gender. They're not thinking about fashion in a woman, man, woman, man, like construct, let alone um, uh, skinny, fat, let alone uh, uh, specifically white, skinny beauty. It's like there's literally no definition. Absolutely. Like it, is, it, is, yeah. it is a definition-less approach, practically. Absolutely. And, you know, I, you know, as someone that's a millennial, you know, I, I, I struggle a lot <laughs> with other millennials. Um, and, you know... I, I have had to go out of my way to learn and to, uh, to, and to be included and to feel in uh, communities of inclusiveness uh, within younger generations. And yeah, it's definitely been, and it still is, challenge. Yeah, and it's the wheel of change, right? Now, a question I have, and this is more for, for you and for Haley, actually, is... Is unisex clothing, like that's something that's been around for a while and it's kind of been talked about and is having a, you know, I don't want to say it's a bit of a renaissance because unisex dressing has always been around for a while, but is that part of the, the needle moving forward? And, and Haley, when you're designing, do you have a like male-female approach? I mean, your designs are so funky and accessible that, I mean, I don't see it as, as a male or female. Is that something you're conscious of or has it just been kind of like part of your blood and you're like, it just never occurred to me to be too defined I'm about it? I'm conscious of it because I basically have to for a commercial viability for more of wholesale mm -hmm. aspect of my business. But for me, I'm actually dressed quite feminine today. Normally I dress more on the masculine side. So the menswear that I create is actually what I generally tend to wear. And everything I say, we, people come to the store, they say, where's the menswear? We say, well, literally the whole store is menswear. It can be worn by anybody. Ethan, who works for me, who's uh, identified as male, wears dresses. And it's like, I don't like to put any sort of limitation on that. But on it, it's kind of, it's something that I wouldn't like to define. Mm -hmm. um, I would much rather say everything's unisex, but there when we do that, we have problems with customers really wanting stuff to be categorized because that's what they used to. So it's kind of a line that I'm towing, but I definitely try to show 
um, be a good example of that by putting um, like male models in crop tops and skirts and that kind of thing for shoots and vice versa. I dress very masculine most of the time. Um, so it's kind of just um, using a visual voice to express that rather than putting it down um, on my website. Like I've can, I have thoughts and it's just trying to approach this like on my website for shopping and I'm I, that's actually something that I'm working on but it's really hard to navigate it in a way that um, like the older generation of my customers will understand the younger people that's kind of what they're used to and what they would um, want to see but my customers are 18 to 35 in general so the older generation they're totally used to going to like the men's wear section women's wear section um, and that's just what they're used to seeing so it's it's something that I think about honestly all the time and that, I, that I'm working on slowly, but I don't have an answer for that, truly. I feel like as we're having this discussion, there's this tension between the philosophy of fashion and the business or the, or the marketing or the industry of fashion. Because the philosophy of fashion is a very... I mean, I think that's what brings everyone into fashion in the first place is the idea of expression and possibility and creativity and individuality. Sage, with working with your peers and the designers with Indigenous Fashion Week, is that something you find they're navigating, like the philosophy of fashion and the business of fashion and, and how to take their approach of the philosophy into the business of fashion? Yeah, it's like definitely the industry of fashion is something I struggle very much with because the, this, it's not, the, the industry is not set up to support local designers, let alone indigenous designers. If we have indigenous designers who are remotely, remote in Northern Ontario, they're not gonna have the access to the industry in the same way that someone in Toronto does. Um, but meanwhile, we're dealing with a cultural appropriation where you know, the stores still wanna put out stereotypical looking things like beads and feathers, but we're not actually connecting with the actual designers. So when I think about the industry and the philosophy of fashion, I think Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto is really about bringing our designers here to be able to create the work that they do within, the, within what has been passed on to them, within that knowledge and within the storytelling and symbolism and the expression that exists within that creation, but also trying to create a two-way dialogue between industry and between designers where our, where indigenous designers are able to thrive within that industry, but in a way that is not one-sided. Um, the industry is very patriarchal, it's very hierarchical, um, where people are afraid to let go of that power of, you know, we have these gatekeepers, but we're not there anymore. We, you can sell online. We don't need those gatekeepers anymore, and I think that, like that's like very fearful for people within the industry because it takes down that elitist way of operating. Um, so I think now, like starting to look at like how does the industry connect with designers, whether they're indigenous designers are, who are remote or a boutique in Queen West, like what does that new um, biz mode of business look like? And do we even need this idea of industry if we're connecting directly to our consumers? And then you get into like the business where you like have to think about how people look at and marketing and stuff like that. But Well, everyone's yeah. trying to keep the lights on, right? Like if you're hoping to make a living at it, then these are the things you need to consider. Otherwise, you're making garments for your friends and family, and it's a hobby, and that's beautiful, but it's a different way of interacting with, with the philosophy and the industry, right? Well, in general, I really think that there needs to be um, an understanding for value, like value on the work that's being created, where we can't, you, we cannot be, make, our designers cannot make things for $10, 
Like, why is it important to see other body types? What does it mean for the people who are looking at the magazines and looking online and looking at the shops and trying on the clothes? Like, why is this something that everyone, whether they give a toss about fashion at all, should be thinking about or aware of? Haley, I'll start with, start with you. Um, I have a really ap applicable personal experience that just recently happened. Um, I have had my own business since 2013, and since then I've just worked nonstop, been really unhealthy, just working, not sleeping enough. I have anxiety, I have um, insomnia, I have lots of problems. And um, <laughs> Sister. Yeah, and up until recently, um, I kind of just pushed myself aside. And this year I decided that I would start running and getting active and turning that into a positive thing. Um, and it took a lot of courage because when I was younger, I was very athletic and a lot thinner and I was more comfortable in my body. And now I'm bigger and it's, it's honestly harder to be active in a body like mine because there's more to move around and that kind of thing. So it took a lot of courage for me to kind of get out there and I used um, my platform to share my journey because I thought that would be nice for other people like me um, to see kind of like an example of a body shape you don't normally see being active and being positive about it. Um, and I actually ended up doing uh, like a kind of a little commercial for Nike's social, social media. And amazing. It was amazing, but the response was horrible. There were so many horrible comments. Like I was actually like devastated for about two, the last two weeks because I was doing something so positive and really trying to do something good for myself, but also to be a good example for some people that don't have someone like Nike on their side to give them Wait, like... are you talking about the video? Yeah. That was so good. I was going to tell you that. Oh, thank you. Well, it was something... I watched the video. Super fun and super yeah, positive. so yeah. chill. It's it awesome. So nothing, chill. nothing big or yeah, shocking I saw at that all. But the comments were like, why is this... I'm not going to say them because I'm not going to yeah, give them a voice. Yeah, don't give them voice. But just saying horrible things. And I think, personally, the main reason why people were lashing out so much is because they don't normally see a body like mine in fashion. Um... And specifically to do with activewear or anything like that. So I think it's just when we don't see something, horrible people see it as something bad. So they need to lash out. But if, it's, if you see a body like mine running all the time or modeling all the time, it just becomes the norm. So it's like I think that when we have representation across the board on an ongoing basis, not for tokenism, not to tick some marketing box or whatever, truly as a positive example on a consistent basis and having brands and designers like us that are pushing for change in our own way, um, that just helps that type of body or that type of beauty or that type of person become the new normal and something that we're used to. Like um, the new 510 Caucasian blonde blue-eyed model can be someone that looks like me. And that's awesome. So it's just having that representation be a consistent, normalized thing for me. Well, because then other people who look like your beautiful self or perhaps a version of your beautiful self will feel, will feel well, will feel good in the world and good in their skin, right? Adrian, what about you? Um, one of the biggest things that I talk about and I try to talk about a lot is um, assume nothing. Uh, it might be, uh, it's, it's very commonly used in the non-binary uh, communities and uh, definitely in trans communities, is that I think we live in, an, we live in a world now where I, I think uh, we cannot assume anything about anyone's appearance. 
is that is that identity doesn't is not the same thing as expression. Is is we cannot assume things about people based on how they express themselves, whether it's body, whether it's uh, the color of their skin, whether it's how they are presenting themselves, whether it's fe uh, feminine or masculine. And the reason why I say that is because we cannot, because it, I, it might could be considered radical for me to say this, but to me it's very normal, is that uh, your gender is up here. And we still live in this very conservative, traditional, historical, colonial... And I'm getting emotional talking about this. I can see, I can see. But it's really frustrating to me to live in a world where we somehow still think about gender and sex as constituted by someone's genitals. And ultimately, that is not the case. Is that, is that we have a mind, we have a body... And, and those two things are separate and can be separate. For some people, they may be the same thing. But, uh, you know, I don't speak for trans people. I don't speak for non-binary people. But in my own experiences, you know, I, I really try to talk a lot about pronoun respect. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what your gender is. Uh, I would always say the least invasive way to talk to a trans person, a non-binary person, is to ask what their pronouns are. And by respecting... Because Alan Watts, everyone, everyone here knows uh, the philosopher, mm -hmm. uh, you want to talk about fashion philosophy, Alan Watts. You know, he said language is a byproduct of philosophy. You know, that, that, uh, that language is a second result. Uh, that, that consciousness, that, uh, that, uh, that the individual, uh, that philosophy in general comes before language. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think language is so important. And I think we live in a new world now yeah. where we really need to think about the way which we use words. Yeah. Does that resonate with you, Sage? Like, I see you. Yeah, totally. Like, well, saying not to assume was, is what, like, there, I, I've been taught from a very young age is we listen um, you listen, and a lot of people, especially in like a Western world, talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, but never listen ever. Um, but if once we step back and listen, that creates space for people, whether you know they're whether it's a race or ethnicity, indigenous people, gender or sizes of our bodies. There's space to um, tell our own narratives. You know, it's I'm, I don't want to see people telling other people's stories for them. You know, we have we are here. And we can tell our own stories for ourselves. We don't need anyone else doing it. We can create our clothes, and that deserves to have a stage and have a space where it can exist and be um, valued within the larger construct of what fashion is. Because we speak for a huge, a huge amount of people, all of us do, who work in this industry. And we have to be aware of that. We have to be able to listen to each other so we can step aside to allow space for the, everyone's narrative to be spoken and told. And I think, I think the very brave things you're all talking about, and I hear things about like being valued and empathy and normalizing and being visible, is when those things happen, that impacts mental health, that impacts confidence, that impacts the level of violence in our world. Like all these incredibly powerful, positive, um, globally accepted ramifications come from this wonderful industry that we all sit in called fashion when we put a more inclusive view of the world forward 
as a whole. And I think that's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. We're going to open it up to questions in just a minute. But first, I'd just like to thank all three of you for sharing your stories, for, for sharing your experiences. Sage, if people want to know more about you or follow Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto, where can they find you? Um, I'm at Sage Paul or Sage Paul underscore on Twitter. And Fashion Week is IFW Toronto on all social media and our website's ifwtoronto.com. And we'll have links on the Fashion Talks website as well. Adrian, what about you? Where can um, people follow you? My handle is Woomingbong. Uh, the, balloons, the balloons on the floor is, uh, is, is, is my Instagram handle. Um, it's also my Chinese name. And uh, you can find out everything about me there. Yeah. Wonderful. And Haley, how about you? Um, my Instagram is Haley Alsacer. I have a website, HaleyAlsacer.com, and I have a store on Queen Street West here in Toronto. And you can follow me at This Is Donna B, and you can follow the, fod- the podcast at Fashion Talks Podcast. And I love hearing from people for story ideas, for episode ideas, for feedback. A big thank you to CAFA, our producing partner with this podcast, and you can learn more about the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards at CAFA Awards, that's C-A-F-A-W-A-R-D-S. And if you enjoyed our episode today and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please take the time to rate and review us. It really helps get the word out and help other people discover the podcast. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and spending this hour with me. Thank you for the conversation. And until next time, this is Donna Bishop at Fashion Talks. Now, thank you. Now, we do have, we're here at Urbanity, the public playground for urban culture and creativity here in Toronto. Do we have any questions for our, our esteemed panel? <laughs> They're so brilliant, no one has any questions. No problem. <laughs> I have a question for Sage. Okay, yes. Um, if someone wanted to attend Indigenous Fashion Week, how, do they, like, what's, how does it work? So it's taking place at the Harborfront Centre, May 31st to June 3rd. Uh, we have four shows that are kind of bringing together fashion, dance, and theatre. Um, those are 8 p.m. each night except for the Sunday, which is 5 p.m. We have a series of panels, um, which are going to be really exciting. We have one about cultural appropriation. Jesse Wente will be sitting on that panel. Oh, I heard Kent Monkman's going to be And we're there. doing a panel oh, uh, in conversation God. with Kent Monkman, who's really going to look so at a jealous. lot of like gender. And, and like, wait till you hear about him ego. and Jean-Paul Gaultier. I swear to God, that's good. Yeah. I can't wait. No. They, they got married. <laughs> um, yeah, so they'll be doing a panel, which is for sure going to be pretty amazing. Uh, we have a series of workshops that look at more um, like practices like uh, indigo dyeing, or uh, black walnut dyeing, and Navajo rug weaving. We have a whole marketplace with 54 um, exhibitors. Amazing. So if you want, like that, this is the place to get your like beaded earrings or to get some really awesome indigenous made gear. We have people coming from Greenland, coming from Nunavut, from West Coast. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting we the get cut. it. It's very Stop exciting. It. <laughs> There's more programming here, Sage. Thank you so much, everyone. Enjoy the rest of Urbanity. And until next time, Fashion Talks. Oh, there is a question. Hooray, we have a question. Yes. Um, so my, I have two questions, actually. Um, from uh, One for its first, uh, Haley. 
congratulations on your videos on Instagram. I closely follow it on Instagram. And uh, I wanted to talk about um, one of your posts that you post about uh, Karl Lagerfeld and how you felt about uh, that post. I wasn't here for the beginning part of the presentation, so I don't know if you talked about it a bit. Um, but if you could uh, detail it for the, per the group out here um, for that part. Um, Karl Lagerfeld recently did an interview with a French magazine. I can't remember the name. It was in French, but it was uh, translated to English. And basically, he said a lot of problematic things. But basically, it was a really great example of kind of the fashion industry in general and the old school notions of fashion. He said some things along the... Basically, um, that models shouldn't have a voice. And if you're... if He literally said, if you are going to be a model and you don't want to have your clothes like pulled around, you should join a nunnery. So he was just really dismissing models' individuality, and I think that fashion in general does that a lot. They call them clothes hangers and that sort of thing. There was a lot of problematic stuff in there, and it was just kind of like building up. This is stuff that I've noticed um, as kind of an outsider in the fashion industry since I've been at university for years. Um, and this was kind of like the cherry on top because Karl Lagerfeld is still seen. He's been problematic since like the 70s or the 80s, he made a collection that he said was shaped to be raped um, with Fendi in the 80s. So I've had a problem with him for a long time, but he's still very celebrated um, as like a genius designer, which I think is really wrong. So it was kind of a, a, around the same time as the Nike, the Nike video I was getting all this negativity and I kind of just had enough and I thought um, I should use the voice that I have. I have a decent amount of followers that I should get, just get my voice out there and um, let people know that this isn't okay. If they're kind of, a lot of people, especially younger individuals, take what they see at face value because they don't, they're just kind of coming into their own as a person. So um, I just wanted to know, them to know my stance on this, that I'm totally not okay yeah. with it, and to just kind of be a little bit more critical of what you see in the fashion industry. Using your power for good. What was the second part of your so question? My second question, oh, by the way, my name is Carl um, uh, from Toronto Fashion School. Um, so my second question is for um, the Indigenous uh, Fashion Show. Um, I saw it also on Instagram, um, a couple of the posts. I wanted to know um, how, how can, um, we were talking about appropriation and stuff like that. How can a designer who wants to um, um, culturally uh, elevate the, the indigenous um, 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 people in Canada that is, not uh, that is not indigenous can do it, or how would we, we would go about to do that? Uh, a lot of research. Um, find out who the designers are and work with them. Uh, really, like, it's, uh, like, those collaborations are so important to creating an inclusive um, world, fashion world that we live in, but also it's so important to make sure that indigenous creators are leading what that what that creation is um, so really it's about like researching what designers are out there figuring out what you want to do what your story is make sure your values align and really creating a, a collection um, collaboratively and collectively um, that's really the way to go about it it's it's not like a just borrow something from it it's it's collaborative and yeah collective awesome thank, thank you. you for your question Thank you. Thanks. We do, we do fashion television music, you know, the... <laughs> da, 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 da. 